I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres. Uh, We hope to give you unique insights into your favorite authors and, of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I recently had a conversation with the blockbusting, best-selling author, Diana Gabaldone, and as you listen to the conversation, you'll get a sense of the kind of enthusiasm Diana brings to her books, her characters, and her fans. Let's get to my conversation with Diana. For the 10 of you that might not have heard of her or the series, take a time-traveling, fiercely independent, brave British nurse, the Scottish Highlands, a passionate, handsome, courageous, red-headed Scottish warrior, passionate love, conflicted love with two husbands, incredibly exciting history, and dozens of riveting characters, and you have a genre-defying series— historical fiction, romance, fantasy, science fiction, and, of course, the time traveling. There are currently eight books in the series, an astonishing 35 million copies in print, and they're published in 40 countries. And if that isn't enough, Outlander was recently voted number two on the final list of Americans' 100 Most Loved Books by PBS's Great American Read. So you might imagine a Scottish lass writing in her garret. But in fact, Diana spent the early part of her career earning a B.S. in zoology, an M.S. in marine biology, and a Ph.D. in quantitative behavioral ecology and was in fact raised in Flagstaff, Arizona. I can't wait to hear about how one moves from that background to one of the best-selling authors in the world and a series that is the origin of a TV series that propelled her books right back onto the New York Times bestseller list 23 years after the books were first published. Pretty crazy journey. Diana, I'm just delighted to welcome you to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. I'm very honored to be here. Diana, so given that you were studying zoology and and uh, behavioral ecology, when did you first think of yourself as a writer? Um, I've actually known since I was about eight years old that I was supposed to be a novelist. Uh, that's the age at which I first learned that people actually wrote books. You know, they didn't just appear in the <laughs> appear. library like toilet paper in the grocery store. You know, <laughs> someone was actually responsible for this. And I just thought, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that makes all kinds of sense. And uh, so I was about, well, actually, I know exactly, I was 35. And uh, I said to myself, well, you know, Mozart died at 36. Maybe we better get a move on here just in case. <laughs> And so I said, okay, I'm an expert there. I'm going to start writing a novel. I can write. I know that much. I just don't know how to write fiction. I said, so um, I better try because nobody ever told me how to write any of this other stuff. I just looked at it and and uh, several examples, and then I wrote one. And if it didn't look quite right, I poked it till it did. I said, okay, you've been reading books or reading novels for the last 33 years. So surely if I write one, I will recognize it. 
So I said, okay, I'm going to write a novel for practice. I'm not going to show it to anyone. I don't intend it to be published. Uh, this is for me to learn how to write a novel. So what I needed to know was what does it take in terms of daily commitment and mental discipline and organization and research and whatever. You know, what do you need to write a novel? How do you get from one end to the other? What is the process like? That's what I wanted to learn. And so I said, okay, what's the easiest kind of book I could write? <laughs> because this is just a practice novel. And so I said, hmm, uh, well, I am a research professor. I know my way around the library. I think perhaps historical fiction would be the easiest because I could look things up. <laughs> and I said it seemed easier to look things up than to make them up. And if I turn out to have no imagination, I can steal things from the historical record, which actually works pretty well. And so I said, fine, historical novel. Where shall I set this? And I was just, you know, casting around looking for an interesting time period, you know, American Civil War, Minnesota, the Borgias, uh, you know, early Rome. These are all interesting periods, but, you know, nothing was really you know, catching fire for me. And in this uh, malleable frame of mind, I happened to see a really old uh, Doctor Who rerun on PBS, ironically enough. And uh, it was uh, one of the second Doctor shows, which is, you know, like more than 50 years ago. But in this particular show, he had uh, picked up a young companion from Earth history, a young Scotsman from 1745. And this was a, you know, good-looking young man who appeared in his guild. And I said, well, that's fetching. Anyway, I found myself still thinking about this, you know, the next day in church. And I said, well, you know, you want to write a book. It doesn't really matter where you said it. The important thing is, you know, pick a point, get started. I said, fine, Scotland, 18th century. So that's where I began, knowing nothing about Scotland or the 18th century, having no plot, no outline, and no characters, uh, having nothing except the rather vague images conjured up by the notion of a man in a kilt. And, which is, of course, a very powerful and compelling image. But anyway, that's where I started. Uh, and uh, despite the Doctor Who connection, he, that actually had nothing to do with the time travel element of the books. That happened uh, about on the third day of writing when I uh, decided to introduce a female character. I said, you know, I've got to have a lot of Scotsmen because of the kilt factor, but I think I should have a, a female character to play off these guys. I'm a lot of sexual tension. That's, that's good. Because the only thing I knew about writing books at this point was uh, that they should have conflict. So I said, okay, uh, female, um, who should she be? And I said, well, I got this, all these Scotsmen. Uh, I'd done three <laughs> days of research at this point and uh, looked at Scotland in the 18th century for conflict. And you don't do that for very long without running into Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Jacobites. And I said, okay, that looks like plenty of conflict. Fine, Jacobite rebellion. Here we are. Um, Scots versus English. Okay, if I make her an English woman, we will have lots of conflict. And so on the third day, I introduced this English woman. No idea who she was, what she was doing, how she got into the plot, what she was going to do there. But I loosed her into a cottage full of Scotsmen to see what she'd do. Anyway, she walked in. There were a number of them sitting around the fire, you know, muttering to each other. Uh, she didn't understand them, of course, because they were speaking Gaelic. Anyway, they all turned around and stared at her when she came in. And I was wondering, why does she look funny? What's going on here? Anyway, one of them stood out slowly and uh, said, my name's Tugel McKenzie, and who might you be? And without my stopping to think, I just said, my name's Claire Elizabeth Beecham, and who the hell are you? And I said, well, you don't sound at all like an 18th century person. Anyway, I fought with her for several pages, trying to beat her into shape and make her talk like a historical person. But she wasn't having any. She just make, kept making smart-ass modern remarks. And she also took over and started telling the story herself, you know, in the first person. And I said, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to fight with you all the way through this book. <laughs> I said, uh, no one's ever going to see this, uh, so it doesn't matter what bizarre thing I do. Go ahead and be modern. I'll figure out how you got there later. So uh, that's, uh, that was Claire Beecher Mantle, and, uh, and she continued to be modern. And so things just kind of unrolled from there a bit at the time. 
I don't write with an outline and I don't write in a straight line. I write in small bits and pieces where I can see things happening. And then gradually as I work, you know, um, patterns emerge and I begin to see, you know, the shapes that are underlying this book. But as it is, as I say, I started with no intention of showing it to anyone or having it published. Consequently, it really didn't matter what I did. Well, I have a very eclectic reading taste, and so I used any literary device or element that I found appealing while I was writing this. And I said, you know, it doesn't really matter, you know, that I have time travel in, in this. And, you know, at the same time, it's not a time travel story. <laughs> but on the other hand, time travel has effects, so it's going to come in later. And meanwhile, what's going on over here on the Jacobite side? And so there's politics. And uh, you know, essentially, it's very accurate historical fiction. I, I am a researcher. And uh, and it's just melded with this uh, very multifarious adventure and uh, with a, a strong love story running through it. But after that, I said, look, you know, the uh, thing about romances is they don't have sequels. I said, obviously, this relationship is going on. And I said, you know, I have never seen anyone write books or a series of books uh, that dealt with what it's like to be married for 50 years for a long time. And so I said, that seems like a kind of a worthy goal. So that's uh, that's essentially what I'm doing on the emotional side of the, of the books. <laughs> and, the, and on the other side, there's a lot of other stuff going on. So, Diana, you called this a practice novel, yeah. Uh, share with our listeners how you ended up even exposing the practice novel to other people, and and how did that lead to its its getting published? Uh, it actually has a lot to do with the fact that uh, uh, I did not marry a bum. I married a very nice man. Uh, he was, however, entrepreneurial in spirit, and he quit his job three months after our first child was born in order to start his own business. And uh, the thing about uh, entrepreneurs is that they're not, uh, they don't have a great deal of income in the beginning. And so I was the sole support of our family. I was an assistant research professor in biology, and they don't pay those people very much. And uh, so I thought, well, I'd better figure out some way of making money that doesn't involve leaving leaving the house. Aside from prostitution in the home, what do I know how to do? <laughs> and I said, well, I can write. And uh, anyway, as a sort of an accident. I And my job at the university, I had developed this little weird expertise in scientific computation, which just means using computers to do scientific work. And uh, so I said, okay, I have this, this odd expertise. So I uh, sent query letters to Byte and InfoWorld and PC Magazine, all the computer press, and I included with my query a copy of a of a journal that I had started at the university called Science Software Quarterly, which uh, was my creation, and I was the head editor and wrote half the articles. Uh, and uh, I also sent along a comic book that I'd written for uh, Walt Disney a few years before called Nutrition Adventures with Orange Bird. And uh, with a short query letter, it said, Dear Sirs, as you can see from the enclosed, you won't find anybody who knows more about scientific and technical software than I do, and at the same time can write so as to appeal to a broad popular audience. Well, this got immediate results, and within a year, I was making as much freelancing for the computer press as I was at the university. Like I said, universities don't pay that well in the sciences. Mm. And uh, anyway, in the course of writing for Byte, uh, they sent me a review or a review package of you know, software, and along with it, a trial membership to something called CompuServe. Uh, they said, we would like you to log on to CompuServe and uh, check out the, the support forum that this uh, software people have. 
Uh, this was just like the sexiest thing ever that you could go online and get live support for your software <laughs> instead of, you know, having to write them letters or call them up on the phone or whatever. And so I said, yeah, okay. So I immediately signed up for CompuServe, went to, did the research, did the thing. And then I had four hours of free connect time left. I said, okay, uh, I'm not wasting four hours at 30 bucks an hour. What else is in here? So I began uh, poking around and I stumbled into a group of people called the Literary Forum. And these were people who liked books. Uh, it was not and is not a writer's group as such, but there were writers in it and uh, many, many people who read and write and, uh, you know, like to discuss books. So for someone with two full-time jobs and three children under the age of six, it was the ideal social life. I logged in every day, usually several times a day, pick up messages, and next time I came through, I'd leave messages and so forth. It was a bulletin board system and still is, um, but yeah, it was uh, a social life. Anyway, I uh, had been there for a year or two when I finally decided to write a book myself. I said, well, I'm not telling any of the people online what I'm doing because I had seen people come through there and talk about, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do research for this, and, you know, next summer when I have time, I'm going to sit down and and you could just see all of the published writers just kind of rolling their eyes and thinking, you don't get it. So I I just kept quiet. But about eight months into the writing of the novel, I uh, found myself logging on at night. I was having a back-and-forth argument with a gentleman about what it feels like to be pregnant. And he said, I know what that's like. My wife had three children. And I laughed and said, yeah, Buster, I've had three children. (laughs) And he said, well, can you tell me what it's like? I said, I can, yeah. But it is kind of complicated. I don't know that I could put it in a 30-line message slot, which is what we had. And I said, however, I have this this little piece that I wrote a few months ago in which a young woman explains to her brother in some detail what it's like to be pregnant. I said, I'll put that in the library here and you can read it. So I did, and everyone who had been following the argument went and read the piece. They all came rushing back, and they said, well, this is great. What is it? And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, where's the beginning of this story? And I said, I haven't written that yet. And they said, well, do you have any more of it? And I said, yes. They said, well, put up some more. We're fascinated by these people. We want to know what's going on. And as I said, I don't write in a straight line, but uh, I I also don't make rough drafts. Uh, I work back and forth in a scene until it's as good as I think I can be. And so, you know, I would have a completed scene every once in a while. And if it was one that I thought would stand without a lot of explanation, I would put it up for them in the library. Uh, this was like, you know, one scene every two or three months. And uh, people got more and more excited. They'd talk about it and they'd say, well, I have a new chunk. Have you seen it? Everyone would rush off and read the new chunk and come back and ask me questions. Anyway, they began saying, well, this is really great. You should try and publish it. And I said, I don't even know what kind of book it is. <laughs> you know, I don't think you really need to know that. I said, but sooner or later, I'm going to write a book that I would like to try to publish. What should I do? Because, as I say, I was now friends with all of these people who were professional writers, as well as, you know, readers and so forth. And all of the writers whom I knew um, said the same thing. They said, get a literary agent. They said, an agent can do two things for you. The agent, you know, knows editors and what, what their tastes are and so forth, has a professional relationship with them. They can match your manuscript much more quickly to an editor than you could do sending it into a flesh pile. If something comes in from an agent that they know, an editor is going to read it very quickly because, A, they know that the agent is sending it to other editors at the same time. They don't want to be cut out. But, B, they also know that this 
agent does know their tastes and so forth. And this manuscript has been screened. They know that it's legible, uh, literate, and possibly even something they want, which is not true of 98% of what's in a slush pile. And uh, so they will read it immediately. So I said it can sell your manuscript much more quickly. And they said the second thing an agent can do for you is to negotiate your contract. They said you don't even know how many rights you have in a book. So anyway, I said that all sounds interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm a long way from needing anything like that, but, you know, uh, let's keep talking. You know, Tell me, you know, how you find a literary agent. And they did. So anyway, I learned all this from these people on CompuServe, and I said, okay, sounds good. Um, so anyway, I just went on chatting with people. Whenever I was talking about uh, anything with a professional writer, I'd say, oh, by the way, I'm researching agents. Would you mind telling me? So I began uh, sort of zeroing in on this one gentleman named Perry Knowlton, who I had heard very good things about from several uh, professional writers that I knew. Uh, they all thought he walked on water. And I was thinking, hmm. Anyway, one or two of them had described uh, what they wrote, and it was very unorthodox. And uh, one lady had told me that she uh, had written this uh, as a very good romance novel. As a matter of fact, she said she tried to sell it, and everybody said, oh, it's a great story, but it's way too long. You need to cut it in half. And she said, before I, do that, I did that, I was going to throw it in the closet and leave it for my grandchildren to read. However, someone had introduced her to this gentleman, Perry Knowlton, who had said, no, no, I think it's great as it is, and he'd taken it off and sold it and became a huge success and you know, launched her career. And I was thinking, okay, well, obviously this guy doesn't mind unorthodox books or very long books, both of which it had struck me I, was, I had. And so I said, so he might be a good match for me. However, I looked him up, and uh, he seemed to be a good match for me, but it also said that he didn't take unsolicited queries. You needed to be recommended to him by someone. So a few months later, I was talking to a friend named John Stiff online. Uh, John writes science fiction mysteries. And I said, well, I'm asking everybody about ages. John, do you have one? And he said, well, yeah. He said, by coincidence, it's the same as you know Judy McNaught's agent. His name is Perry Knowlton. And he said, I know you're almost ready to look for an agent yourself. Would you like me to introduce you? to him. I said, well, yes, John, that would be very nice of you. <laughs> you know, I was afraid that uh, John would uh, leave CompuServe or be run over by a bus before I finished the book. And so I said, yes, go ahead, ask him. John just sent him a quick note saying, uh, you know, I know this woman from CompuServe. Everyone thinks she's hilarious and, you know, she can write. I think uh, she might be worth looking at. And I followed that with my own query, which is pretty short. I said, dear Mr. Knowlton, I have been writing and selling nonfiction by myself for the last several years, but now I have a novel. I understand that I really need good literary representation. You've been recommended to me by, you know, John Stith and Judy McNaught and Char- Carolyn Cherry. And I said, uh, you know, they all think that you walk on water. <laughs> I thought it might be worthwhile approaching you. Um, I said, I have a very long historical novel. I don't want to waste your time. Would you be willing to read excerpts from it? I didn't tell him I wasn't through writing it. Excerpts were all I had. Right. But anyway, he called back and said, yes, he would be happy to read my excerpts, giving me a heart attack in the process. And uh, so I you know, printed off uh, my best excerpts and hastily wrote a 26-page single-space synopsis of the book. Anyway, uh, he uh, took me on on the basis of an unfinished first novel of indistinguishable genre, which is not at all usual, and it wasn't usual then either, but it was really lucky for me. One of the things that's striking as you talk about this sort of journey that you went on is there's nothing typical about it. You know, uh, most writers struggle to find an outlet, find an agent, get it published, and some never do, and some go Mm -hmm. on to do that for years. So you had an online community in CompuServe, and then the reaction of of an accomplished agent. What is it that you think 
resonated so singularly with with both of those, both the group and the man, that um, allowed you to move so quickly towards being a published novelist? Uh, the, <laughs> the very immodest but basic answer is that I can actually write. Uh, I mean, write well. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I, I had the luck to be born a storyteller. I've always been able to do that. And, um, and you know, it, it basically is uh, just luck, but also... Uh, well, it's never just luck. You can't just sit around and wait to be lucky. You have to work at it. And then, you know, the luck definitely helps. But, uh, yeah, no, it was basically that I have a unique voice. It, uh, it, uh, it's uh, something that uh, appears to be um, attractive to people. They, uh, they want to know who the people in the books are. They, uh, they feel that there's a great reality to them. They regard them as real people, as friends. They worry about them when they're not reading the books. <laughs> and, uh, and they, you know, have to find out what happens next. And did you imagine it as a series that would go on for now eight books, and then we'll talk about you working on the ninth? Did that occur to you? <laughs> Uh, no, no, I was just writing Outlander for practice and <laughs> felt uh, extremely accomplished to have finished it. Uh, but as it was, when I did finish the manuscript, I gave it to Perry, who sent it out to five agents who he thought might like it. And when I sent it to him, I said, you know, I can tell that there's more to this story, but I thought I should stop while I could still lift it. You know, but if anyone's interested, you could tell them I think there's more. Anyway, of the five editors he sent it to, uh, within four days, three of them had called back with offers to buy it. So he negotiated amongst them for two weeks, and he told them all, she says, there's more. And they all said, well, trilogies are very popular these days. Do you think she could write three? And being a good agent, he said, oh, I'm sure she could. And anyway, he came back two weeks later with a three-book contract, and, you know, bang, I was a novelist. You know, the book has had, the first book has had two lives, right? Once when you originally published it in 91, Mm -hmm. and then they came to you to do the series in 2014? About that, yeah. Yeah, no, mind you, the books have been doing quite well on their own long before the TV series came along. Uh, in fact, uh, all of my books have stayed in print in hardcover for the last 25 years. Which is astonishing. Uh, as far as I know, that's, we are the only book that's done that, other than, I think, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, well, <laughs> what what's your role in the TV series? I am a consultant, uh, which means basically, well, it can mean anything, depending on what your relationship is with the production team. Luckily, I get along very well with uh, with our production team and vice versa, um, because I respect what they do and they respect what I do, which are not the same things. But uh, what I do as a consultant is they send me uh, script outlines, they send me scripts, they send me the revisions to the script. Each script goes through... Um, between six and ten revisions, even before it reaches the shooting version of the script. And uh, and they also uh, send me the, the dailies when they start filming. So every day, at least five days a week, I get uh, an hour or two hours, sometimes three hours, of dailies that they've shot that day, which I watch, you know, some of them I skim through. But if there's something really interesting, I watch all the takes from it. And, uh, you know, and I'm encouraged to uh, comment on all of this and give them my opinion. Uh, because I can tell them things, you know, that are that will happen in future books. You know, they're working right now on uh, blocking out season five, which means they're trying to figure out how they can possibly do a 12-hour version of a book that's half a million words long. This will not be easy. But I trust them, and I think they'll do a good job. But, you know, if they say something in the script, uh, in fact, this season four here, uh, they killed someone in one of the scripts, and I said, I don't know, people reading book nine are going to be surprised to find this guy still alive because he's coming back. And I said, oh, well, 
will unkill him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can tell them things like that. But I can also tell them things about the characters and about the historical setting and some of the details of these people's lives and setting. Because, you know, they do uh, a certain amount of research themselves and they have other consultants. They have uh, a history professor and they have a, a doctor of medicine and so forth. And they ask these people questions as well. Um, but, you know, I am the specialist on this particular story and these particular characters. So anyway, um, you know, I just tell them anything that comes to mind. And sometimes uh, they'll do something and I say, look, you know, I, I, <laughs> I really don't like this and this is why. You know? And uh, sometimes they will change it. Sometimes they won't. Uh, sometimes they say, well, we understand where you're coming from. I wish we could do that. But, you know, logistics, this is why we don't have the... Uh, the scene in the grotto in the in steaming water at the end of season one is because it uh, would cost a fortune. And as Ron said to me, you can't imagine the insurance complications when you put actors in hot water. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so they could not do that. We'll get right back to my conversation with Diana Gabaldone in a minute. But I wanted to take a moment to tell you about today's sponsor, which is actually a book. So that makes sense. Uh, And the name of the book is The Gift That I Can Give by Kathy Lee Gifford. And here's some quotes about her book. Uh, This is from Hoda from the Today Show. It's never too early to get advice from Kathy Lee. Of course, Kathy Lee's her pal. Uh, This beautiful book is full of life lessons for your little one. My Haley loves it. Uh, Savannah Guthrie, another pal, uh, says pictures are adorable. The message is in important, uh, teaching kids to be generous with their hearts. Here's here's what I got. Um, it's a picture book, so it's for little kids. But what what it does is, you know, a lot of times when you talk to kids, you say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? What this picture book by Kathy Lee Gifford reminds us to say is instead to say, what do you love to do? And what that question suggests is that each kid has their own gift. And by asking them what they love to do, you're encouraging them to develop their own gift and be their person. And so, I, you know, I, I like that message. I think it makes sense. It's a way for kids to take some pride in their own identity. So I, I, I get why people like Hoda and Savannah like the book, but I can see how as a parent, you'd like to encourage that message. So for the uh, entire month of November, our listeners can get 30% off of this book, The Gift That I Can Give by Kathy Lee Gifford, just by entering the code JTRB. Visit store.faithgateway.com, store.faithgateway.com, and apply the code JTRB, and you can buy the book and get 30% off. How fun is that? So, Diana, talking about uh, you bring up keeping two different opposing thoughts in your head at the same time. One of the uh, fascinating elements of the book, and I'm not I'm not giving away any plot because you learn this pretty quickly, is that Claire ends up being married to someone in contemporary times um, mm-hmm. and then married to someone else in the 18th century. 
Mm-hmm. What were you hoping to explore emotionally with having Claire in love with two husbands at the same time, essentially? Well, I don't know that I had, you know, explicated any particular motive. It just uh, seemed like a real, very interesting conflict, especially because as I wrote, I began to, uh, you know, to understand who these characters were. And it was apparent to me, you know, there are some kinds of books in which the the modern husband would just be a throwaway, so to speak. I think there's one called Night in Shining Armor or something that's like that, where a woman is escaping an unhappy contemporary relationship and finds love in the past and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, just forgets about Mr. Bad. And, you know, this was this was not what was happening in this book. Uh, Claire honestly did love her, her 20th century husband. So, yeah, there's a lot of other stuff that comes into it. So I can't say that I had anything in mind specifically in terms of, you know, a point to be made or anything to be explored. Uh, I just explore stuff as I write it. I say I don't uh, plan things out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. I just kind of wade in and <laughs> we see what happens. <laughs> Diana, has your writer's life um, been different than how you imagined it? Well, yeah, I couldn't possibly imagine most of the stuff that happens. <laughs> it just gets weirder by the moment, though, you know, in a good way. <laughs> Uh, for instance, uh, in uh, last summer, uh, my publisher sent me an invitation from the New York Yankees who wanted to know if I would be willing to come and throw out a first pitch for them at one of their September games, <laughs> which I said, yeah, why not? I mean, my my father was a huge Yankees fan, and I'm sure would have been you know, rolling over in his grave with anxiety lest I lapse it up, but luckily I didn't. And uh, anyway, I went and threw out the first pitch for them at a game on September 14th, and a uh, good time was had by all. But you know, this is something that would never have happened to me had I not written books. You know, the other thing that's happened um, is that there is an enormous cult following uh, that you have. In in what way does having the, the kind of fans that you have charm you? And in, is there any way in which they worry you? Oh, no, I can't say that they worry me at all. Um, the first time that I met Sam Hewitt and Katrina uh, Balfe in the flesh uh, was right after we had done together a, a large fan event in Los Angeles where we'd had an audience of 2,500, you know, berserk Outlander fans. We were just so thrilled that, you know, finally their beloved books were becoming a show, and they loved Sam and Katrina and so forth. Anyway, we were having lunch afterward, and they were just floored. They said, this is amazing. They said they're treating us like rock stars. Neither, uh, neither of them, you know, had been at all a famous actor before this. They're good, but, you know, it's it's a difficult uh, choice. And anyway, I said, well, don't look now. You are a rock star. <laughs> I said, you know, the fans are great. Uh, you know, they will love you. They will do anything that you ask them to do as long as you don't disappoint them, and I know you never will. I said, um, I have never had a bad fan experience, never. And mm. I said, I think that the reason for this, though, is that people with real mental derangements don't have the attention span to read one of my books. Yeah, so I have a natural filter in that regard. Yeah, so there's a type of fan. Yes, there are. And, you know, the book fans uh, tend to be you know, literate, compassionate, civil, kind, educated. Mm. You know, they're, they're, as a whole, extremely nice people, very, very kind. And uh, I said, you know, but anyone can watch television. So, you know, the minute the show goes, looks, goes live, start looking over your shoulder. And, you know, on the television side, the fans are a little more various, let's say. Um, but... Uh, Still, they're all very devoted fans, and uh, one of the odd side effects of of these books, and then hence the TV show and so forth, is the fans in that they uh, they form communities. Uh, the books mm. seem to draw people together, and uh, they 
they you know find friends, they recommend the book to friends, they form book clubs, then they form social groups, they start doing Scottish dancing evenings, they yeah. have uh, uh, fan trips to to Scotland together. Uh, it's it's uh, just a, a really strange but a very very wonderful uh, phenomenon. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I I was curious about, you know, there's a lot of hot sex in 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 the book interspersed with the historical fiction and the Mm -hmm. incredible landscape of Scotland. One of the things I wondered about is when you first published your book, were your family and friends surprised about that? Was that something that they thought, wow, I didn't know you've been, you know, that was in your brain all the time? I mean, I've heard heard the book described as a Fifty Shades of Grey for feminists. Uh, yeah, well, I doubt that they didn't, <laughs> but you can't keep people from from making their own conclusions. Uh, no, I didn't worry about it at all because, for one thing, I wasn't planning to show this book to anyone, and so I made only two rules for myself when I began writing. I said, uh, first rule is that I won't stop. I will not fi- not stop until I finish the whole book because I need to know what it takes to write a whole mm-hmm. book. So not just to make little forays into it and decide, oh, this isn't working, and throw it away, which is what a lot of people do, unfortunately. I said, I said, I won't quit. The second rule is that I will do the absolute best that I can every day in the, in the writing, because if I'm not doing my best, how will I get any better? Mm. I said, you know, Matt Ballerinas don't go into class and, you know, piddle about because, well, this isn't the real thing. I'm going to wait till I'm actually on a stage before I bother getting up on my toes. I said, no, you don't do it that way. And so those were my rules. And um, so I said, okay, uh, I'm not going to show this to anyone and I'm not going to tell anyone that I'm doing it because I didn't want anyone, you know, interfering in my process, so to speak. And saying, oh, I don't think you should do this, or, you know, I really think right. the story should go this way, or, you know, I don't like that, and so forth. Because when you're first writing, you're very, very susceptible to other people's opinions. And I'd seen this happen many, many times. But I said, no, it's 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 me in the book, and that's that's all there is for the time being. That may be all there ever is, but that's all there is, because otherwise it's not going to be a good book. And so, you know, I wrote it as well and as honestly as I possibly could, and, you know, it worked. <laughs> so I have, you know, continued to do that. When it was released out in the world or became public information among the people that you knew, was there anything that surprised them uh, about you or about the book? Well, I don't think so. Mind you, my mother died when I was 19, mm. so you know, I was... Uh her, I probably would have told. <laughs> but anyway, I certainly would not have told my dad, who, uh, while a wonderful father and so forth, had very uh, firm opinions about things. But uh, he didn't read books, uh, for the most part. A very educated man, but and a politician. So he mostly read, you know, magazines, newspapers, you know, political biographies, things like that, sports uh, biographies. He didn't read novels. So I was not real worried about his, you know, reading uh, one of my books. And uh, anyway, he finally did read one of them. It's the one that's dedicated to him, which I think is uh, Drums of Autumn, the one that they're now uh, uh, filming and so forth. Anyway, he d- never said anything to me about the sex and so forth, <laughs> because all of his friends were, you know, reading the books and saying oh, how wonderful they were. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, and he was, he would have been much too embarrassed to mention it to me. Um, but anyway, he, he liked the book. I'm not sure whether he skimmed it or what, but anyway, it, it didn't, it wasn't ever an issue. Mm-hmm. So, Diana, there's a lot of emotions in the book. Do you ever need to uh, take a break from writing because you yourself have a an emotional reaction in the process of writing about it? Oh no, you better have an emotional reaction yeah. if you're writing. And it doesn't it doesn't tire you or Oh, it's uh it's deeply um 
engrossing is too small a word for what it is. It's kind of encompassing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, episodes like that are, are quite brief, by and large. And when you're reading the book, it's, it is built, it's engineered to lead you into uh, escalating emotion and so forth, and they hit you. Uh, but I don't write it that way. Um, I will know that this very difficult scene of one kind or another is coming up, and I will have absolutely zero idea what to do about it. And I find that thinking about it in any great detail is very counterproductive. Um, And basically, I just have to wait for a moment, which is, I call it, when the words show up. And that just means that I will have a phrase at some point. It's usually something that someone says. I will hear someone say, you know, this particular phrase. And I'll think, yes, okay, there, there they are. And I will write that down. And then from there, I just uh, kind of explore the, mm. uh, the scene going backward and forward. And, you know, I just let it come and you know, write it as simply as I can. This is actually the uh, the technique for uh, for doing high emotion stuff is you keep it as simple as possible. You don't want to be jumping up and down and scattering adjectives and adverbs all over the place. In fact, you stand back as much as you can and just let the uh, the situation expand by itself. I am delighted today to welcome a new sponsor, Warby Parker. Warby Parker has totally upended uh, the concept of eyewear, both by making it easy to do online, creating sort of a boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. And if you have an iPhone X, you can download Warby Parker's app and you can figure out how to fit your glasses or think about what styles look really good on you. I used it and it is very easy and it's very fun. So what they do is they have a free try-on program. You order five pair of glasses. You get to have them at home for five days and, you know, walk around your house and see which ones you think you look good in. There's no obligation to buy. They ship to you for free. So there's lots of fun features if you go with Warby Parker. For one, you get five pair of glasses. They ship for free. And you can figure out what you look good in. Their glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. For every pair that you buy, a pair is distributed to someone in need. And then there's special offer for our listeners. So go to warbyparker.com slash book and check out all the cool kind of glasses that you can get delivered to your house and figure out which ones you look really cool in. Let's get back to my conversation with Diana Gabaldon. So, Diana, are are you done with the ninth book yet? No, <laughs> but we're getting closer. And and so, you know, based on what you've talked about with your writing style, you didn't sit down and write the ninth book with any plan of what would be going on for the characters. Um, no, uh, that said, I mean, it is the ninth book in a continuing series. So plainly, a number of the events that took place in the last book will have carry-on effects. And I just decide, you know, am I going to deal with these directly or are we just going to mention them in the background? I don't know. Uh, what's more important usually in one of these books is the historical events. What time is, mm-hmm. this, uh, is this book set? What's going on here? We're right now in 1779. 
going into 1780. And so I have, you know, multiple historical references and almanacs. Usually I'll look through the, the uh, listings for that particular year and say what battles were going on here, who was in them, and so forth. And so I can tell, for instance, in Book 8, that the Battle of Monmouth was happening in a place where my characters could reasonably be involved in it. And it was a really important battle for reasons that I won't go into here. And uh, so I said, okay, we're going to use the Battle of Monmouth. That's not the, the focal point of the book. Exactly. But it is a focal point of the historical timeline that the book is anchored to. Right. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just an event, how people respond to events. And the effect that the history has on them is a different thing. But uh, that's that's just one of the concrete markers that I use when I'm uh, orienting a book. One of the questions um, I ask all of our uh, guests is, what's the book that changed your life? I know you said you started reading at three. Uh-huh. So what what book would you say has changed your life, Diana? Hmm. Well, that's a difficult question. I'm 66 now. I'll be 67 in January. You read a lot of books in that much time. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I'd have to say that almost every every good book that I've read has changed my life in some regard, usually a small one, but you know, sometimes an important one, just that you see something you had not seen before, or you think about something from a slightly different angle, or you pick up a resonance of character, a voice that kind of continues with you. Sometimes it becomes part of you. Sometimes it drops away after a while. Oh, it would be hard to to pick out a book and say, oh, I was a different person after I read this. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alice in Wonderland is probably the first real notable book you know, that I remembered and read repeatedly as a, as a child. And what that taught me basically was, you know, the power of absurdity. <laughs> right. And are any of your kids writers? Yes, as a matter of fact, they are. Um, my uh, son is a is a novelist. He uh, writes under the name Sam Sykes, S Y K E S. That's uh, his pen name, and uh, he writes uh, what's called uh, the epic fantasy, which means it's it's long and it's detailed. It his particular band also is very violent and hilarious. Also very very deeply moving. He's yeah he's got a good hand with emotion. But uh, yeah no he does quite well. His seventh book has just. Let's say I think the seventh book is being published in April of next year. Uh, he's working on the eighth one right now. But he has two published trilogies and uh, a number of novellas and things like that. Do you give him advice? No, but we talk about writing now and then. You know, he'll stop by and say, you know, I'm talking, I'm, yeah, this is what I'm doing, and you know, and I'll, I'll say, really, yeah, okay, and you know, didn't you do that in the last one? And I'll say, well, I'm doing it a different way this one. This time it's this way, and so forth. Or he'll come and ask me a question, like, you know, if I wanted. A, a sea creature that did this particular thing, uh, what would that look like? And I can usually tell him um, because I was a marine biologist at one point. Um, you know, things like that, but uh, I don't really advise him um, unless he has a specific question. I mean, he can write by himself. Well, what's the element of your enormous success that's been the most satisfying? Uh, just the fact that people read and, uh, and like the books or love them in many cases. Mm. Think about all those readers out there. You know, I, as I yeah. as I was thinking about the books, it was it it made me think about you know Harry Potter for 
adults in the sense that what I see in the bookstore is that for some people who have not been avid readers, who become avid readers as a result of reading mm-hmm. Outlander. Yes, I'm quite astonished at that, you know, given the size of the books and so forth. But uh, but it does happen very frequently. I have a lot of people who say, you know, I never really read much, or I had dyslexia or exactly. whatever, but you know, your books were recommended to me, or I heard it on an audio book, you know, and I, I just had to uh, to read it for myself. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's extremely gratifying. My mother was a remedial reading teacher, and her first uh, tenet was that you let people read what they want to read, not, you know, what you think they should read. Exactly. And so she had vast quantities of, you know, comic books and magazines and so forth, and uh, she would let uh, one of her students pick out anything they like to read, because she said if they want to read it, they're going to read it, you know, and you can't force them. We see that in the bookstore where, you know, um, uh, ambitious parents think that they're, you know, they'll bring in their child and say, oh, he wants to read Shakespeare or a classic, and one of our booksellers will look at this little eight-year-old who's, you know, mm-hmm. lovingly eyeing a graphic novel, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. You, you know, it's a thing that we always try to encourage parents, that whatever their entry point for reading, that's their entry point. That's it. Exactly. Right. And I think for any number of grown-ups, Outlander is their entry point to becoming, you know, voracious, committed readers, which is, you know, you, you know, that's as a bookseller and as a writer, what could be better than that? Exactly. No, no, that's uh, deeply gratifying to me. And yet, you know, that's not anything that I could have aimed to right. have happened or, you know, or anything like that. It's, uh, it just did happen, and I'm very pleased that it it's did. It's lovely collateral credit, as I would say. <laughs> that's very good. Uh, Diana, I really want to thank you for taking the time to have a conversation with us here at Just the Right Book and, you know, for making lots of readers just enormously happy and engaged. I know that there are gazillions of people anxiously waiting for the ninth book, and maybe we'll get to talk again after that ninth book comes out. Well, I hope so. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Diana Gabaldone. And if you haven't picked up The Outlander yet, you can binge read all eight books in the series until the ninth book is released. Are you a fan of Diane and the Outlander series? Email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or message us on our Facebook page. We love hearing your comments and book recommendations. Please keep them coming. Email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or reach out to us on our Facebook or Twitter pages. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. Hey, Just the Right Book listeners. This is Christina Torres, the show's producer. And here at Just the Right Book podcast, we love books. And we love going to our favorite indie bookstores to browse the staff suggestions. It's what they call shelf talkers in the book biz. Well, imagine having your own personal bookseller who handpicks books just for you. Just the Right Book subscription service is a personalized book of the month club that delivers just the right book to you or the voracious reader in your life's mailbox. How does it work? Well, first you go to justtherightbook.com and choose a four, six, 
or 12-month subscription. Then tell us about your reading tastes and preferences, favorite authors, genres, books, and more. Then your own personal bookseller will send you books picked just for you. And if a book is not just right, no problem. It can be exchanged for another. So go to justtherightbook.com, pour a cup of tea or a glass of wine, sink into your favorite chair, and experience the pleasure of a great read.